Unorthodox with the Angry Behavior Analyst is a relief valve for stifled thoughts, theories, and opinions related to social science. Unorthodox is unfiltered, uncensored, and most importantly, uncancelable. The Angry Behavior Analyst is all triggers, no warnings. In my pursuit of truth, I've been called a lot of things. I've been called a white supremacist, a Nazi, a sexist, an ableist, anti-woman. When I tell my family about how I'm perceived in my angry online persona, they're confused about how their little Kayla can possibly be seen in such a negative light. I've invited countless people into meaningful conversations, whether it be on the podcast or on the phone, and I've only had one person return the invitation with a yes. I decided that today, what better person than my husband to interview me, drill and grill me with the meaningful, difficult questions because he knows me better than anybody else. He is the one person that could draw out softness in me when callousness is all that's seen on the outside. All right, we are back to Unorthodox, and I have my husband, Dylan, with me. Babe, welcome back. No, thanks. Dylan has a lot of questions for me today. We're flipping the script, and he will be interviewing me. So you get to speak more. I do. It's my favorite thing to be able to speak more. Why are you here? Twist my arm. Yeah. Why are you here? What got you to this point? I mean, the podcast life, your your education, what got you here? I would like to think it's a mix of discipline and grit and perseverance that my dad instilled in me. Mm-hmm. And I've always been kind of a contrarian, not for the sake of provoking difficulty or difficult conversations or awkwardness on purpose, but... I've always been interested in the conversations that people are afraid to have. I was never raised in a household where people were afraid to speak to each other about things. My dad was always very forthright with how he spoke. And my mom was too. And I'm finding that that was something I loved when I was in school for clinical psych. And it really came to a screeching halt when I started my ABA program and when I started working in the behavior analysis field. So why do you think people are afraid of having conversations? I think there's a lot of reasons, but at the core of them, the patterns I've seen have been that we just haven't had enough exposure to learning how to handle ourselves when we're wrong. Okay. So what do you mean by wrong? Do you have a definition of right and wrong? It depends on the context and it depends on the topic of discussion. So if it's like a morality issue, then what's right to some people and what's wrong to some people, it could vary pretty greatly. I think we all generally have the same ideas of morality, like killing people is bad and being kind to people is good. But there's a lot Mm -hmm. of in-between areas with that. I think that the conversations I've found myself in, there are things that are when I say right, I mean logical fact. And then when I say wrong, I mean they're they're legitimately 
a court when, I guess, compared to the empirical evidence and logic and fact, they are just, they're incorrect facts. So you're a fact person, evidence-based not person. fully. I'm okay. not. I don't want to discount experience because, again, if we're talking about morality and more abstract, subjective topics of conversation, then you are going to start to toe the line of subjectivity, where life experience and your own opinions can bear equal weight to logic and fact. And there are some things that have no logic and fact. Like I had a conversation with my students about God and religion. There's no empirical evidence for something like that but it's something that people really strongly believe in. Um, but yeah, I, I think that it's important that we're not fearful of facts and logic. And that's what I've seen a lot of recently. So you do, do you believe in science more than religion? Ooh, yeah. For me, I consider myself, I guess, an agnostic atheist. So I would go so far as to say that I believe in science more mm. than religion. Were you baptized? Mm-hmm. As what? Catholic? I guess. <laughs> you guess. So you don't really know. I it was we were baptized, I feel like as more of a of a courtesy. Like it felt like stage directions. When your babies are born, you go to get them baptized, and we never went to church ever for any reason. We never discussed religion. After we were baptized, which we obviously don't remember, there was mm -hmm. no conversation of religion in our house. Were your parents baptized? I don't know. No. Oh. Why? I've never asked them. How come? It didn't seem important. Okay. <laughs> Do you believe in religion? Believe in it. In the in the sense that I believe that it's re like. Do you believe in a? A higher power. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think so. No, okay. I've never, I feel like I've tried on several occasions to understand the, the closeness and comfort that one may feel when they're, uh, I guess they're committed to their faith mm -hmm. or their religion. And I just, I can't, I can't find it within myself to, to commit myself to something like that. It's just, I've always had a hard time with like visualization and trying to visualize these scenarios, but connect myself to them emotionally. That's always something I've never been able to do. No, I understand that. And I think religion is no different for no, me. I, no, I understand that because you know, I was raised in a very religious household and there was always this higher power. And, um, you know, we, we were brought up to kind of follow that path. So how did you get here? Why did you get your two masters? What was that process like for you? Um, in high school, me and my brother were both going through some really difficult, our own, our own compulsive disorders. So mm -hmm. my brother, he started smoking weed and drinking really early. So he started in middle school. And then when high school came, 
he had already been um, experimenting with cocaine and heroin Mm -hmm. and speedballs. I think by that point, he for sure had done crack. Me, I was never really into drugs. I, I experimented with weed and alcohol the same way a lot of high school kids do. But I was also in treatment for anorexia, and that really overpowered my will to do anything else. That was my biggest passion in high school and even in Why do you think that happened? I've tried to connect the dots a few times with things. I I had broken up with my high school boyfriend Mm -hmm. and when you know, it's your first love or you think it's your first love and it, it's infatuation. You're infatuated, but you think you're in love. It tricks you into believing that this is your soulmate for life. So when it ends, it feels like your entire world crumbles and you're doomed to misery for the rest of your life. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I had broken up with my high school boyfriend. I had also torn my ACL And I was really athletic. It was one of my favorite things to do. I was really competitive. I loved to participate in any kind of sport. What were you playing when you tore your ACL? I was playing lacrosse. Okay. Yeah. And it was sad because I wasn't even running. My foot was planted. So it wasn't even. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You tweaked the knee. Yeah. Yeah. And so I tore my ACL. I felt a tweak. I walked home that same day thinking nothing was wrong. And then I had the ACL surgery and I was prescribed a really hefty dose of Vicodin Mm. and it made me nauseous to the point that I couldn't eat anything. And I remember I had to take time off of school because I was recovering from surgery. And when I came back to school, a bunch of girls commented, Oh my God, you look so skinny. Mm -hmm. And that was the seed that planted my eating disorder. And it literally was the only seed I needed. I mean, that would take hold of me. It still does. That was what, 16 years ago? I don't know. 16 years ago. Yeah. So again, I'm going to ask you, Mm -hmm. how did you get here today? Like, why did you get your master's in clinical psychology? I felt like I had a really firm understanding of myself. And at that point, I was a couple of years into recovery I was starting to understand how powerful our mind can be. And I was seeing my brother fall into just what seemed like there was no way, there was no turning back for him with his Mm -hmm. heroin addiction. And I felt like I could give back in some sort of way to people that were struggling with the same thing or at least be there for people that didn't have someone to talk to. Because when I was in treatment and again, you know, they, the therapist I worked with could have had an eating disorder. I had no idea. Cause those aren't things you're supposed to share with your patients. But I was struck sometimes by how they just seemed aloof to the point that they couldn't possibly understand what any of me and the other girls were going through. Cause mm-hmm. they seemed so, not cold, but it seemed very transactional and like they were reading from a teleprompter mm-hmm. all the time. Okay. How was your relationship with your brother? We're always really close. What happened? Um, he, he got involved with a lot of gang activity mm-hmm. in really bad parts of Chicago. Mm-hmm. So... You know, we right now we live in a suburb of Chicago. 
when we were in high school, we still lived pretty far outside of the city. But for those that are remotely familiar with Chicago, it's been called Shiberia um, and Chirac because of the um, criminal activity. And he found himself in the thick of uh, a lot of the gang activity in like the South side and in Englewood. And he started, I mean, a lot of what a lot of drug addicts do, they lie, they cheat, they steal, and they will do anything to keep their addiction going. Mm -hmm. So he started stealing from me, my parents, uh, taking stuff out of the house, uh, selling it. I remember there were a couple of times we would go outside and like one of the tires from the car would be gone because he just wanted to probably sell it for, mm-hmm. you know, a gram of heroin. And one of the, my dad, I've really never seen him cry. I've seen him cry twice. Once was obviously when my brother died, but the first time was when we had just gotten a really bad snow and we had a, a snow blower so that we could kind oh, of yeah. help yeah. us, you know, mm-hmm. our driver was Remove kind of the longer. Snow. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, my brother, sold it for like 20 bucks so that he could buy crack. Yeah. And my dad, I think that was the first time I saw him cry because they were getting, my parents are older. We talked about this mm-hmm. in our last yeah. couple episodes. They're baby boomers. Um, and they just saw it as like how we, this is a terrible winter coming up and you know, Kayla's going to have to do all of this. And I just, my dad felt like, how could you do this to our family? It really wasn't about the snowblower. The snowblower was a stand-in for all of the other stuff. But um, yeah, it's really hard to keep a close relationship <laughs> with someone when you're always worried that... It, it, I don't know how to explain this. The time Connor was always really honest about, I know why you lock stuff Connor's up. Connor's your brother. Yes. I know why you lock stuff up. You have to because of what I did. And so he was very honest about that, but there's it there's weird parts where it makes you feel guilty having to do that. And it mm-hmm. makes you feel guilty when you say, Connor, I'm going to run to the store. And then he sees you locking everything in the house. Uh, that has to be demoralizing. Do you think that experience um, that you had, you know, not only with um, what you were continuing with, but within the family, within your brother, wanted you or you had more of an emphasis to try to help people. Is that yes why you got into no. clinical psych? Yes and no. Okay. Um, I realized really early on with clinical psych that, and maybe this was because I was so early on in recovery and I was still dealing with Connor. Um, and shortly after his death too, I think all of that really made me feel like I couldn't handle hearing these stories day in and day out Mm -hmm. that I wanted to use my clinical psych degree for maybe something that was a little bit more detached. Uh, People ask me all the time, Oh, you have your, your master's in clinical psychs. You're a psychologist or, or you're an LPC. And it's, there are times when I'm embarrassed. I tell them, no, I'm not licensed. I, I, I could only do research and teach. With Why are you degree. embarrassed about that? Um, or why were you? I think I had a, a conception or an idea of wanting to be a psychologist and wanting to be someone that I believed could handle stuff like that, or at least hearing things like that. Why? Because I always believed that I had this really strong 
backbone and a, a really large capacity for handling difficulty. I mean, I was the one that made all of my brother's cremation agreements and I had to tell my mom that he died. Um, and I, when we flew down to Florida, I had to make all the arrangements to fly to Florida for everybody because my parents were too distraught. So I felt like if I could do that, I could do anything. And I think it actually had the reverse effect. It made me not want to do it at all. Like when, when I say do it at all, I mean, it made me not want to talk about it at all with other people. Mm -hmm. So what do you want people to know about you? Your, your audience, what would you like them to know about you? Not just based off of what you say or you write that maybe could be taken, you know, in a different aspect. What do you I, want? What, what do you want people to know about you? I want people to know that there's a person behind this account and there's a person behind the words that they so viciously attack. I mean, I've said this several times. I think I have a thick skin, but it becomes, it's really irritating to me sometimes where uh, I'm really blunt. And again, this is on me. This is nobody's fault, but my own, I'm very blunt and no, I'm very forward. And with that being said, when you're that open, you have to expect that people uh, will respond in whatever way they want because they're entitled to, uh, but they almost respond sometimes as if I'm not an actual person. Like, I feel like they've completely dehumanized me and just see me as this um, like provocateur that is purposely trying to anger them. So they're justified in, in being really mean and saying really mean things. No, I, I completely understand that. When do you think that happened? Like the time frame that... You know, um, is it social media? Is it how you phrase things? Not just you yeah. necessarily, but in general. When do you think people started really getting? Um, I think around offended. Yeah, I think around like twenty nineteen ish. Oh, so before the pandemic. I think so. Okay. Yeah, because that was when social media really started taking off. At that point, I was not on social media, and all the stuff that I say on social media, I've practiced saying it in person before I ever started my account. Um, and I think that's why I have kind of, uh, um, I, I'm able to handle it and tolerate it better than had I just relied on social media alone to learn how to say these things. But I think that the anonymous nature of social media has made it really easy for people to be mean. Or kind or they kind yeah i i don't see a whole lot of challenges with people well i mean isn't that kind of the same thing i mean i it's not this i'm talking to you it's easier for it, people to be mean so and it's harder for them to be kind yeah because there's no consequences. I, I mean, these same people that I asked to come on to, uh, not even the podcast, because I try to be empathetic that, you know, being on air isn't something that people are comfortable with. Yeah. But even a Zoom conversation that's completely private, even a phone conversation, you know, it's it's just apparently too violent for people. So that was something new. I had never experienced that in any 
any program I've ever done. Um, and we talked about a lot more contentious issues, like in my clinical psych program and in my first job, a lot more contentious issues came up and the reaction was never uh, name calling and, you know, reporting my license to the board and have, all of these other things. So have you, you've experienced that. Yeah. Why? I posted at one point that uh, you could be racist against white people and someone messaged me saying, you're going to have to tell me your name and credentials so that I could report you to the board because this is unethical and you clearly have not taken into account DEI, which is in our ethics code. Mm-hmm. And I essentially responded by telling this person to uh, go fuck herself because she has no business. I mean, that's the th- is the audacity and the entitlement demanding my name and credentials because she thinks that I engage in some sort of wrong behavior. Yeah, you stepped across the Yeah, it's yeah. like I don't remember ever somebody making you the arbiter of, you know, the BACB. Um, and I got quite a few of that because the BACB notifies you every time you're reported. So have you been called a racist multiple times? Yes. Okay, so what's your definition of a racist? A racist is discriminating against people based on their skin color. Okay. So what's your skin color? Um, peach. <laughs> <laughs> because your mom came from Cuba. Yeah. yeah. And your dad is. Yeah. He's Italian. So yeah. he would be considered, you know, a colonizer cause he's from Europe. And so this is, this reminds me of a comment I got recently. Um, Someone told me, and this is what I hear a lot of when people run out of logical responses, which happens pretty quickly. They jump to things like race and sexism and and whatnot. And this person said to me, "Um, you know, I think that the reason why you think this is because you just need to check your privilege as a white woman because you've never lived in this world as a person of color. And I responded to her by saying, I'm not white. And all she said was, well, you're white passing, so you look white. Stuff like that. I don't understand how that's not racist. No, it is racist. <laughs> I mean, anybody that says, in my opinion, I mean. Yeah. So, all right. So. You could be racist against any race. Or could, religion. Yeah. you Or culture. Yeah. And we've kind of fallen into this trap of, I. that's why I think a lot of people revert to that when I talk about these issues. Uh, because they think that I look white, and apparently that's ammunition well, it is, enough. You know, January. Yeah, I'm pale. Like, <laughs> give, give me a break. We live in Illinois. Yeah. <laughs> what else do you want to say to your audience? I I feel as insecure with certain topics as anybody else does. I. I empathize with the anxiety that comes with saying something that feels out of place or out of turn or that, that I guess has been deemed politically incorrect or socially unacceptable. So I think sometimes because of how forward I am and forthright I am, I think there's this assumption that I must not give a shit or I must not care or Kayla must be unaffected by Uh, by the same social consequences that we all feel. And I think that's a shame to 
not just for me, for anybody to think that way about another person, because you're that much more apt to be mean and it'll be justified because you feel that it literally doesn't affect this person because you're only seeing this digital avatar where, oh, Kayla said something that I, I, I don't like, but I don't even think people consider me Kayla Perry. I think people just almost see me as this, this angry little digital bot that sets why, out to anger people. Why do you think people feel that way about you? I think I've definitely spoken in ways that can be abrasive. I think I've definitely responded um, irrationally. I think that I f- I've felt before that I was pushed into a corner and I lashed out because of that feeling, whether it was my own perception or whether it was legitimate. And I think we live in a world where we've gotten so used to fluffy language and disclaimers and trigger warnings and everything being delivered in such this, this delicate flowery manner that Mm. people who are blunt and very forward, especially women uh, can be seen as rude or offensive or like they're personally trying to attack people. Okay. Um, what is like, why do you think that happens? Why is it, you know, a, a gender men versus women thing in your opinion? I'm not, I should have, uh, elaborated on that point a little bit. I think that men are just as prone and susceptible to feeling the same negativity or fear or anxiety that women Mm -hmm. feel. I think that men are affected in some ways that are the same and some ways that are different when we come out and say something that we're quote unquote, not supposed to say. I think that because feminism is such a, it's kind of like a corporation now. It's like a business now where, um, it's really hard for me to understand some of the principles because I've always been, my dad taught me to be kind of more of this, not forceful, uh, but like a powerhouse. And he never brought up the fact that I was a woman. He just taught me to go get whatever I want. Mm -hmm. If you want to be a bricklayer, Kayla, go be a bricklayer. Nothing's stopping you have at it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so when I, I think when I have criticisms about, how we're almost trying to go backwards or to me, what feels like we're going backwards, Mm -hmm. trying to teach young women that they are um, lower on the totem pole than men or that they're weaker than men. I have a huge problem with that. And I think when I speak in more masculine ways and I skip all of the positive fluff and I, and I have my criticisms of excessive positivity, I think that's why I can be I can be very off-putting to some populations. Yeah, I think people are, I mean, that's kind of where we are uh, in general. People Mm -hmm. get offended, you know, with, you know, take your pick. But you're also teaching at a local university. Mm -hmm. And these are students that are in their, what, early 20s, late teens, yeah, most are in their early 20s. Okay. What do you want to bring to the table 
for them because they're what 10 years younger than you eight years younger than you like what are you bringing them like what are you teaching these young these young students what do you want to teach i guess i want to teach them what education is supposed to be i want to instill humility and curiosity within all of the kids and curiosity has become this throwaway term that people use. Oh, just remember to be curious. It helps, but we're not embodying curiosity because curiosity is an acute term. It's hard to be curious. It is so hard to feel like your character is being attacked or to even have someone vehemently disagree with you. It's really hard to, to stay curious instead of wanting to fire back. And I think that critical thought is, just this beautiful part of communicating and learning that is nowhere to be found in academia anymore because everything is uh, forced in this, this meat grinder and, and put in this beautiful casing of, you know, what, what is socially acceptable or whatever social justice activists said we should be focusing on. So I really want my kids to come away from these classes feeling like they have, unabashedly reviewed themselves and how their, I guess how their thinking um, is connected to their behavior. They could find the flaws in their own thinking and that they could apply these skills in any conversation that they have so that they're not running to a safe space (laughs) when they're offended or they're not running screeching and crying and protesting when somebody disagrees with them. And so, you know, you and I had a lot of conversations um, about communication Mm -hmm. Uh, and then you've brought it up. Um, What's lacking in your opinion with communication with people? Is it? No, just just answer that. Like, what do you think is lacking? You're trying to instill how to um, teach Mm -hmm. um, communication How do you go about doing that? People don't ask questions anymore. (laughs) I mean, I say this so frequently and I apologize if I sound like a broken record here, but people rarely ask me questions, which makes it very difficult to understand where I'm coming from. So when they get really upset with something I say, instead of trying to gain clarification as to what I mean, or, hey, Kayla, can you elaborate? Or even, Kayla, I completely disagree with this. Do you want to talk about it? It's let me type 15 novels as to why you're wrong. It's more of like a direct statement versus... They're all statements, yeah. 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 Or, or the questions that are asked are rhetorical. Like, oh, like someone said to me, they're like, what even is a fact? Ha ha. And like, that's... That's not a question. You actually got that? Yeah, that's oh, not wow. a question. That's, that's just, just like this immature ignorant. little dig. And um, and what's more, this person literally thought they were asking me a question. So I don't know how we lost sight of, of asking people questions. And when we're asked questions, I don't understand how we could possibly get upset by the fact that we're being asked questions. Yeah. So are you asked questions? Hardly ever, no. When did that stop? Um, Actually, pretty much since I started this Instagram account, rarely people ask me questions. When I talk to people personally, 
Um, it's more organic and they ask me more questions, but it's really hard to get to the point of personal conversations with some people. Yeah. In thinking about the ways that I'm perceived, which absolutely has, I'm at fault for ways that I've responded. I realize that I can talk in very blunt ways. I can be abrasive to people that, that don't understand. And I decided that the plot twist that we've come to is that I feel like I actually have kind of outgrown uh, the angry analyst name. So I don't, I don't. Why? Well, I wrote a resignation letter to the angry analyst. Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you (laughs) not just because, you know, you're my wife, but I would tell anybody this. Mm Mm-hmm. Do not be afraid to do what is needed for you. Regar- I'm not. Okay, good. So yeah, I'll leave it at that. I'm I'm not afraid. I, I don't take all the blame. I'm not taking all the blame okay, good. either. Good. I, I'm not taking blame. I'm this is something that I want my students to to learn too, is that yeah, we don't have to agree with every piece of feedback we get and we don't mm-hmm. have to apply every piece of feedback. But I guess when you asked me a little bit ago, what I would like people to know is that when people give me feedback, I take it, I not only listen to it thoroughly, but I take it very seriously. Yeah. And as you should, this is something that was really important to me. And I, I grow the same way anybody else does and I'm entitled to evolve however I see fit. And so I, I felt like I wanted to put this letter together to better clarify, I guess, um, this little evolution of myself. Good. Are you ready? It's about time. (laughs) This is a resignation letter to myself saying goodbye to angry. Anger is an acquired taste. It certainly has been for me. My tongue sometimes burns from the taste of its irrelevance. With its potential for excellence comes the caveat of blunted awareness. You all have supported my fury and celebrated my rage without recognizing that what I was harnessing was not actually rage at all. For those who know me best, like Dylan, a frenzied temper is a detail that seems incongruent with my true character. I'm beginning to wonder if constantly combating perpetual offendedness and intentional unawareness has taken an emotional toll that has stiffened my patience. The very aspect of myself I could always rely on is, in many ways, unable to live freely under the umbrella of an angry analyst image. Anger is a natural emotion, one we shouldn't be afraid to admit we feel in varying degrees. I've learned quite a bit about myself throughout the process of bringing my private conversations to the public. I've learned that I make as many conversational errors as the next person, while unfortunately recognizing that these errors would serve as ammunition for some. This being said, the vitriol has allowed me to see that my spine was even sturdier than I initially believed it to be. It could withstand more hate than I ever understood it could. I've learned that my skin was callous to the point of being perceived as lacking compassion and a perceived deficiency in empathy has burned bridges I didn't even know existed. 
I could continue to try to define myself as lacking a modicum of femininity, joking that I'm more masculine than feminine, and that I am a brute force female with abrasive tendencies, but I'm not going to do that because my perceived dearth of softness is a stand-in for the true flaws in my character and is a cover-up for the things that I pride myself on most. Opening my arms to any and all conversation has made me vulnerable, an aspect of this pursuit that I believe is conveniently forgotten. It's easy to believe that my feelings aren't as ripe as others because of how I present myself, which I take full ownership of. The mental shortcut of shrugging off my frustrations as just being angry is a powerful force that poisons open-mindedness, a poison I've ingested more times than I would like to admit. What I've allowed to be misconstrued is my true character. And I can't take the full blame for that. I can't control how people think, how people perceive me, but I definitely have played a part in my general perception. The person who feels bad for everyone after hearing their voice or seeing sadness fall upon their face is Kayla Perry. The person who has been overly tolerant with people who aren't even entitled to it or deserving of it is Kayla Perry. I've responded irrationally at times, I admit to that. I've allowed my confidence to be shaken at others, I admit to that as well. And I've also fired back without allowing myself enough time to think. I'm human. I'm human as much as anyone else. I'm as human as the person who listens to this podcast. I'm as human as the person who emails me. I'm as human as those who grow wildly upset with me. And I don't want to continue to put myself in situations where I'm tempted to take cheap shots. My aim of making people think generally has been successful. I've gotten more positive feedback than I can count or that I could even fathom. I've also noticed I've plateaued because being fiercely passionate is not synonymous with animosity, but perhaps this distinction is erased when it's only confined to social media. Exuding a rough around the edges exterior has not allowed for the nuanced fragments of myself to hold their own weight. I try my best to give respect to those who have brazenly disrespected me. It takes everything in my power to remain patient when I feel slighted or to respond objectively when I'm ambushed from all angles. Even when these things happen, I can't say I'm angry, at least not all of the time. The angry side of me is only an unfilled portion of the outline that is Kayla Perry. I've been wrong about more things than I can even count on both hands and both feet. I've analyzed errors in my own thinking, and this online persona of the angry analyst has served both as a linchpin in understanding myself and as an obstruction in understanding others. In my pursuit of building stronger spines and dampening sensitivity, I believe I've occasionally heightened reactivity. The people who have taken the time to speak with me outside of who they believe me to be have experienced a softness that digital acquaintances simply cannot. And maybe it's time I bring more of that to my online persona. I'll still bring my snark, my sarcasm, and my bluntness, but there are also sides of me that people do not know. I've outgrown angry, and quite honestly, I've outgrown behavior analysts in a lot of ways. Yes, I am a behavior analyst, and yes, I am angry some of the time, but these are two things that only a fraction, that comprise only a fraction of the person that I'd like people to get to know. 
We talk frequently about feelings of burnout or a lack of fulfillment. Frankly, I'd like to think I've evolved from the sometimes abrasive, angry personality. I've engendered a lot of controversy, which I don't necessarily aim to do on purpose, and I certainly don't intend on stopping. What I also want to engender, though, is openness, and perhaps being angry is inefficient in doing so. Welcome to Honestly Unorthodox. My ideas can't possibly live on their own. My voice isn't strong enough of a vessel all by itself. I'm relying on all of you to embody your own version of truth. You don't have to be afraid of cancellation and of bullies. We have to be strong enough to speak truth in the face of danger. We can't be weak. We have to stand up and fight. Truth is something that you would think would be worth fighting for, and this all begins with all of you. We will see you for our grand rebranding next time.